People said, Amen. You can uh, turn in your Bibles with me to Second Kings chapter 5. Second Kings 5. Before we start, though, you may you may remember back in uh, 1999, a, a certain a certain movie was released that year uh, that sort of changed filmmaking forever. Uh, it's as the movie called The Sixth Sense. Uh, now I'm going to break. I'm actually going to break the rules that I learned from my preaching class in seminary and say that I've not actually seen that movie. <laughs> uh, and so, but I'm going to talk about it anyway. I was always told, I was always told, you, you cannot reference something that you have not seen or read. And I'll be frank, I haven't. Uh, but I suspect, uh, even if you have not seen it, you, you maybe have heard a little bit of the plot. I think you might know a bit of the premise. Because it was so revolutionary and groundbreaking the premise of the movie is this. There, there's a child psychologist, played by Bruce Willis, who takes on a counseling case for a young child who, we find out over the course of the movie, can see and speak to dead people. Uh, and over the course of the movie, this, this psychologist, Bruce Willis, helps to sort of counsel this child along to figure out that he, he has these gifts or whatever you might call it in order to sort of help these people move on to the next life. Terrible theology. Very, very bad theology. Do not get your theology from the, from the sixth sense. Uh, but you, you think you've been following the movie this whole time. You think it's about this sort of counseling relationship and this this man and this boy kind of growing together, this child learning his purpose, how to help people move on. But the big twist at the end, and this movie's been out for 23 years, is that the child psychologist Bruce Willis has been dead the whole time. He is a ghost who's been talking to this child. He didn't know it, and he himself finds it out at the end. You as the audience don't know it until the very end and, and you almost have to go back and rewatch the entire movie because you thought you'd been seeing this man live his life, interact with his wife, interact with all these people, counsel this child. You thought you knew what this movie was all about. And, and this groundbreaking, you know, jolt, being jolted awake with this shocking truth at the end, I mean, the entire movie is different than what you thought. All of your preconceived notions about what you'd been watching the entire time are just shattered. And now you have to go back and rewatch with this new, this new understanding, this new truth, and it changes the way you watch the movie the next time. And now there is a little bit of that here going on in 2 Kings chapter 5. This is supposed to be one of those groundbreaking texts that jolts you awake and makes you go back and reread scripture, rethink your life in a brand new light, even for those of us in the church. It's a well-known story, the story of Naaman the leper, 
who gets healed from his, his leprosy. Um, but there is much, much more going on here than just, just a simple healing from a skin disease. Uh, so we're going we're gonna to read this text uh, together. Uh, before I do, though, let me, let me pray for us one more time. Our Heavenly Father, we do, we thank you and we praise you this morning, gathered together as your body. We have spent uh, the last number of days thanking you and uh, praising you for the many good things you've given to us. But we thank you especially now for your word. Lord, we know that it is, it is in your word that we find life, that we find help, that we find uh, salvation, we find a guide for how to live, and so we pray that you, would, that you would give us soft hearts. We pray that you would open our ears, help us to understand how to live for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's read 2 Kings chapter 5. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Assyria, Syria, excuse me, was a great man with his master, and in high favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians, on one of their raids, had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Would that my Lord were with the prophet who's in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his lord, Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. And so he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive, that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel." So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word that the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, Wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and he came and stood before him. And he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. 
So accept now a present from your servant. But he said, as the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Then Naaman said, if not, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth. For from now on, your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any god but the Lord. In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the house of Ramon to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Ramon, when I bow myself in the house of Ramon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. He said to him, go in peace. But when Naaman had gone from him a short distance, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, see, my master has spared this Naaman the Syrian in not accepting from his hand what he brought. As the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. So Gehazi followed Naaman. And when Naaman saw someone running after him, he got down from the chariot to meet him and said, Is all well? And he said, All is well. My master has sent me to say, There have just now come to me from the hill country of Ephraim two young men of the sons of the prophets. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of clothing. And Naaman said, Be pleased to accept two talents. And he urged him and tied up two talents of silver in two bags with two changes of clothing and laid them on two of his servants, and they carried them before Gehazi. And when he came to the hill, he took them from their hand and put them in the house, and he sent the men away, and they departed. He went in and stood before his master, and Elisha said to him, Where have you been, Gehazi? And he said, Your servant went nowhere. But he said to him, Did not my heart go when the man turned from his chariot to meet you? Was it a time to accept money and garments, olive orchards and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male servants and female servants? Therefore the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and to your descendants forever. So he went out from his presence, a leper like snow. Amen. <clears throat> Again, this is a story of, of Naaman, certainly, but, but really also, you see at the end there, it's a story of Naaman and Gehazi both for us. And the story of Naaman and Gehazi is, is meant to be a shock for Old Testament Israel. It's meant to be a shock for the Jews in Jesus' time, which we will get to when we read Luke Luke chapter 4, we'll talk about that, and it's meant to be a bit of a shock for the church today. Now, there are, there are a lot of, of just role reversals and, and inversions and, and things that you wouldn't expect in this text. Uh, we see sort of a role reversal between servants and masters. We see a role reversal between the, the dis- diseased and a healthy person. But the biggest and the most shocking one in this entire story is, is, is who is blessed and who is cursed, and who is saved and who is condemned. Because again, Naaman's healing, and I don't know, you might call it Gehazi's infection, go a lot deeper than just the skin. They tell us about each one of these man's hearts. And this entire ordeal shows us that the gospel of Jesus Christ is something that is is radically gracious 
It is radically universal, and it is something not to be trifled with. So we're going to kind of look at this text just, just in, in, in two parts. First with Naaman's healing, and then with Gehazi's infection. Uh, so we'll start with Naaman's healing. Verses 1 through 19. Good, good sizable chunk of this text. Now who is Naaman, and what happens to him? This text is pretty unique because all along Elisha's been ministering to Israel. First and second Kings has primarily been following the nation of Israel, right? But we're, we're plucked up from the nation of Israel and brought to Syria, a foreign nation, out of the blue. And we're introduced to Naaman, who's the commander, a high-ranking official in the Syrian army. Now, Syria is a nation that we, we actually haven't heard from yet with Elisha's ministry. If you've read First and Second Kings, you have. Syria is this nation that has this on-again, off-again truce with Israel. They're constantly at war. Currently, it feels like there's a bit of a truce, although it's sort of mixed with a kind of tension between the two kings. Um, this was the nation, this, this is a nation that King Ahab actually defeated in war multiple times if you go back in 1 Kings. It's also the nation that God uses as an instrument to judge Ahab and kill Ahab in war later. They've got a long history with the nation of Syria and Naaman is at the top of their very their army. He is a great man, but he is extremely needy because he has this nasty skin disease. Uh, now, apparently, whatever this leprosy or skin disease is, it's not bad enough that he has to seclude himself. It's not bad enough that he can't work anymore, but it's bad enough that it's a constant problem in his life. And the one person who sort of comes to his rescue, so to speak, is the little servant girl who lives in his house, the Israelite servant girl who lives in his house. She's probably 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 years old, something like that. And she tells Naaman's wife about Elisha and that if only Naaman would go see Elisha, he could heal him. So they think it's worth a shot. Naaman goes to the king. The king sends a letter to the king of Israel because surely a great prophet who could heal leprosy or a skin disease like that would, would be living in the king's court. Of course, he's wrong. Uh, he sends the letter and the gift to the king, but the king of Israel himself feels utterly helpless. In fact, the king thinks this is a joke. The king thinks Syria is just looking for an excuse to go to war again. Thankfully, Elisha jumps in and he says, King, send him to me. And so Naaman goes out to meet him. Uh, strangely, Elisha doesn't. Naaman pulls up with his chariots and his horses and his bags and bags and bags of gifts. Elisha just sends out a messenger and says, go wash in a river and you'll be done. Which is, is shocking. Now, at first, Naaman hates it. He's incredibly offended that Elisha would not come out to see a man of his stature. Uh, and so he leaves to go home in a rage. But again, thankfully, as is the case 
with a lot of Elisha's ministry, the unnamed servants come to the rescue and try to talk some common sense into him and say, all you have to do is go wash in a river. Do you not want to try that? And he does, and he goes to wash, and he's healed. Now, I, I, would, I would personally love to know if, if each of those seven dips in the water, if he progressively got better, or maybe after one, two, three, four, five, six, nothing, and then the seventh he came up, brand new. Um, I, it's just an, an interesting part of the story. I wish I knew because you can imagine his, his, either his growing hope or his growing frustration as he continues to wash. But after that seventh one, he comes up, and he comes up from the water a new man. And so he, he goes back to Elisha, and he makes this great confession about the Lord God of Israel being his only Lord and the only true God. He has this kind of bizarre, this bizarre interaction where he wants to take some earth, some ground back to his homeland, uh, which that's, it's best understood to mean that this is a reference back to Exodus chapter 20, where it said that God would be worshipped with, with altars of earth and ground, not of carved stone like the false gods. He, he wants to worship God the way that he wants to be worshipped. And then he also has this kind of strange question about going back home and going into the temple of a false god named Ramon, And to be frank, this is such a bizarre question. Apparently, part of his job is to help his superior go into the temple of Ramon and help him bow down and help him to worship. And Naaman is worried about this perception that he's going to be bowing down to a false god. And we might look at him and say, well, Naaman, you're only going 90%. (laughs) If you were a believer, wouldn't you quit that job? And wouldn't you leave that service because you don't want to have anything to do with the the, the false god, Ramon, in that temple? And again, I'll be honest, I don't know if I have a good answer for that. (laughs) It is a tough thing to understand, except we can say that, number one, Elisha gives him a blessing to go in peace. He says, the Lord does forgive you and pardon you. And, curiously, Naaman has a very sensitive conscience now. He's worried about the perception. He's worried about what it's going to look like. And if he were only going halfway as a follower of the Lord, he might not give a second thought to it. But he does care. He cares about his own holiness. Which... The reason for this story in the first place actually says something very significant about the nation of Israel, the rest of the nation of Israel itself. Um, But again, we'll get to that in just a minute. Now, Naaman might be a story that we all know, but what kind of lessons are we supposed to take away from Naaman the Syrian being healed of his leprosy? Number one, we need to learn the humility of faith. Now, there's a very, very deliberate description that gets repeated in this chapter. The first one comes in verse 2. When, uh, when it says, The Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel. 
The second one comes in verse 14 when it says, He went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child. Here is one of those, those sort of role reversals. Naaman, the great man, the commander of the army of the Syrians, had to become a little child. Just like the little servant girl who served in his house. Naaman began this story very entitled, very prideful. He thought he deserved something very, very great from Elisha. He's offended because Elisha himself doesn't come out to do something for him. He's offended that Elisha only sends a messenger. He's offended that Elisha sends him away to be healed rather than, I don't know, doing some sort of mystical hand-waving over him. He's offended that he has to go to a dirty river, Jordan, instead of one of the clean ones in Damascus. But all of this is kind of deliberate, Elisha's sort of deliberately offending Naaman. Not, not, not in a sinful way, but according to the customs of, 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 uh, of those nations in, in Syria and Israel, he deliberately does things that offend him in order to tackle the pride, in order to tackle the entitlement. It's actually kind of the opposite of another story from Jesus with the Syrophoenician woman in Mark chapter 7. She's the woman who found Jesus and begged him to heal her demon-possessed daughter. And this is one of the wildest stories in the New Testament. Jesus says, um, I'm going to paraphrase, but, but, but the, the bread is for the children. It's not for the dogs. Why would I help you? And the Syrophoenician woman comes back and says, yes, Lord, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the table. She, she's so, she calls herself a dog, right? Jesus first calls her a dog, and then she says, yes, I know. I know I'm a dog. I know I don't deserve it. I know I'm not as good as a child or an heir. I know I don't deserve your mercy or this forgiveness, but, but please help. But that, that's what Naaman had to learn. He thought that the Lord, and he thought that Elisha would just be at his beck and call. He thought that the Lord would be like a vending machine, where if he just does X, Y, and Z, he gets what he wants. It was humiliating for Naaman. But that's exactly what faith takes, is to be humbled and humiliated. You can't stand on your own dignity. You cannot call yourself great if you want the gift of eternal life. We do not have any standing before God who is perfect, who is just, who is good. We need to be a child and a servant and a dog. Again, Luke 4, when Jesus is preaching in the synagogue, he references uh, this, this text from Isaiah, and he starts to read it, which, which is meant to describe him and his ministry. And he says, I've come to bring good news to the poor. I've come to bring liberty to captives. I've come to give sight to the blind. I've come to give freedom for the oppressed. And I wonder, do those descriptions apply to you when you read that text? Are you poor? 
Are you a captive? Are you blind? Are you oppressed? Does that describe you? Because that is how we need to be in order to receive Christ. And once we do receive Christ, then we do have that standing before God. We can stand before him. You know, we, but we never lose that mindset of being humbled before our God. So that's lesson number one, the humility of faith. Here's the second one. Number two is God's big goal. Now, God's sovereignty in this text, it kind of, it kind of quietly plays in the background for the whole story. Uh, even beginning in verse one, it, he talks about God giving Syria victories in war, which earns Naaman's favor. God is sovereignly working uh, these, these, uh, these uh, international political sort of relationships, even, this is interesting to keep in mind, even at Israel's expense, God has given Syria war, uh, victory in war. But then in verse 2, it, it shrinks way down to the single life of this little servant girl. We, we have to read verse 2 very carefully and just think about how this little Israelite girl got to Naaman's house. The Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel. This little girl has gone through, I imagine, horrific circumstances to be brought into Naaman's house. Um, she had gone through just, just tremendous tragedy, certainly separated from her parents forever, away from her home, leaving everything that she knew. And all of these things, both, both in terms of the, the giant international political relationships, as well as this one single, you know, 10-year-old girl's tragedy, he uses both of those things to save Naaman. He uses both of those things to bring the gospel and forgiveness out to a Syrian, not an Israelite, but a Syrian. He's a Gentile. He's a foreigner. He's dirty compared to Israel. He doesn't belong. He's an outsider. He did all of these things so that the Lord, he, he did all these things so that Naaman would be able to experience grace and forgiveness. And this is one of the greatest conversions in the Old Testament. It's on par with Rahab, the prostitute. It's on par with Ruth, the Moabite. It's on par with the Ninevites that Jonah goes to and preaches. His very short message. And in a, in a, in a bigger sense, you, you can't really see it, but in the ministry of Elisha from chapter 2 through chapter 8, of 2 Kings especially, chapter 5 is the central point of Elisha's ministry. And it, it's actually the climax of Elisha's ministry. Remember, he's been dealing with all these different types of people. Early on, he was dealing with the, the, the wicked kings of Israel. And then he was dealing with sort of the, the faithful remnants for all of chapter 4. Now he's dealing with Naaman. Then he's going to go back in chapter 6 to sort of a faithful remnant again and then expand back out to the wicked kings and the apostate nation. 
So what is Naaman doing here at the very center of it all? He's a Gentile outsider who comes to know the Lord. The central point and the climax of Elisha's ministry and Christ's ministry, and really the Lord with the whole of creation is to bring in the nations. Right? That's been the point of the nation of Israel ever since Genesis 12. Right? He promised to bless Abraham and give him a ton of offspring. Why? So that he would bless the nations and bring them in. And of course, it's the point all the way through, the, the very last word that Jesus um, speaks on the earth in Matthew 28, to go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Um, now, I'm sure many of you, like me, I did this the past few days. Um, on Thursday before, before dinner, I, I, I prayed the prayer. Uh, I'm sure you all heard it. If you didn't pray it yourself, thank you, Lord, for all of your blessings. Thank you for family, friends, food. Uh, Thank you for so many good things for the church. Thank you most of all for Jesus and for the gospel. Thank you for Jesus and for his blood. Um, That's not where the Christian life is supposed to end. I think we often get to that point where we thank Jesus for saving us And then we're just kind of in a holding pattern until we get to heaven. Uh, We just kind of, we we run out the clock to give it a sports metaphor. This this chapter is not, it's not meant to be just a, you know, a feel-good story of of God's salvation. It's it's not meant to be even a a rebuke, like, like Gehazi gets rebuked, but it's more of just a challenge. Is it your mission, and is it part of, your heart to go take the gospel to other people? Are you willing to go out and win people for Jesus Christ? Because if it's not, you're missing part of God's plan for creation in the universe. Uh, You're sort of, you're missing, uh, you can think about it like this even. Um, Have you heard of the third act in life? You kind of go through these stages in life, the first act of your life, you're, you're, you're young, you're all the way up through college, you're just kind of having a good time. You get into the second act, which is a little more steady. You settle into a career, maybe you buy a house, maybe you have a family. Um, the third act starts at, at sort of retirement. What do we do now? If, you, if, if it is not your life mission to go take the gospel out, you are missing that third act, that third piece of your life. Your life does not end at Jesus saving you. He's designed each one of us to go out, to be used. Again, even with Luke, again, with Luke chapter 4, Jesus points this out with both Elijah and Elisha. That there were, there were plenty of widows in Israel. There were plenty of lepers in Israel. But through Elijah and Elisha, he did not go to those. He went to the widow of Zarephath. He went to Naaman the Syrian. The, cent, the central part, really, of Jesus' ministry is to go out to the nations. And this is sort of that sixth sense moment 
for Israel. Uh, it's the sixth sense moment for, for those who, who would be reading this. The Israelites who would be in exile and were reading the story would be the, that sort of moment for the Jews in Jesus' day. Just a total reorientation of, of what have we been doing? Have we been going out to the nations and bringing them in? And they hadn't been. But that is the mission. That is God's big goal. And so thirdly, a, a third lesson we're meant to take away from this flowing out of it is the need to go and to love and to speak. And, and the more I was reading and studying this text, the more I thought, this little servant girl is the hero. <laughs> it's not even really, I mean, of course it's God, but it's not even really Elisha. This little servant girl is just the person you're supposed to model yourself after. It was literally Naaman's job to oppress Israel. And yet the Lord was gracious to him. God has been, been infinitely generous with us. And so we are free to go out and be generous and gracious with other people. So just like this, this little servant girl, how, how do you view your life's tragedies? How do you view your, your dilemmas? I mean, she, she had every right to be bitter. She had every right to hate Naaman. You know, we don't know exactly how this, this raid went down, but, but, you know, for all we know, Naaman is the one that actually grabbed her and picked her up and brought her away, maybe even killed her parents. And yet she's willing to love her oppressor. She's willing to, to speak to him, to tell him about Elisha, and more than that, she actually wants to see him healed. Right? That is incredible. How do, we, how do you view your tragedies? What is it that drives the decisions you make during the day? How do you use your time? How do you steward your resources? Um, if, I, if I'm being honest, the question and the driving motivation for myself during any given day is, Okay, how am I going to get all my work done? How am I going to get all my responsibilities covered? How am I going to, you know, get home in time to help with the kids? And how am I going to just, just get through kind of getting them to bedtime? And, and uh, how am I going to stay sane during the day? That, that is not the driving motivation we're supposed to have. It's not the driving motivation I'm supposed to have to get me through my day. The question that we're meant to keep asking ourselves is, is how can I use this opportunity right now? Now, ultimately, to glorify God, but how can I use this opportunity now to bring Christ to somebody else? How can I use this time? How can I use my resources? What decisions do I need to make in order to tell somebody else about Jesus? Even and especially the enemies. Um, because God goes out and he gets the Naamans, and he brings them in. And that ought to be our mission too. And so it's a good reminder for us that the mission of God and his heart in salvation, that's only, that's only half the story though. The second half is a little bit shorter, and it deals with Gehazi, Elisha's servant. Now clearly Gehazi does something wrong. He gets cursed 
with, uh, with leprosy. He's sent out from Elisha's presence, and, and really more than just leaving the room, it's implied that Gehazi's gone for good. He never serves Elisha again. He is relieved of all of his duties. So what does he do wrong? I can count seven, maybe eight of the Ten Commandments that he breaks. In all these verses, he's clearly idolizing something over God. He takes God's name in vain with the oath that he makes. He dishonors an authority figure. He He takes sort of an ethnic dig at Naaman by calling him this Naaman the Syrian. Hatred. He's greedy. He steals. He lies. He covets. But what is it about Gehazi that leads to his curse? The worst of it is he distorts the truth about the Lord. Now, what do I mean by that? Now, Elisha also took an oath for himself in this text. He took an oath and said, I am not going to receive any of the gifts or the payment that you brought me. And he did that intentionally. Elisha took that oath and he did not take the gifts to prove a point that Israel's God was not like Naaman's other gods. You cannot buy him off. You cannot manipulate him. You can't bribe him. The Lord is not a taker. And even though he doesn't explicitly state that, you can tell that's what's in his mind because of what he says in verse 20. What is it that pushes Gehazi to go chase Naaman? My master spared this Naaman the Syrian and not accepting from his hand what he brought. He didn't like that Naaman was let off the hook. Gehazi wanted Naaman to pay. He wanted Naaman to pay a price for God's forgiveness. And now Gehazi has really become everything that Naaman was. Now Gehazi is prideful. Gehazi is entitled. And again, that brings us back to Luke chapter 4. Because here's the the really interesting piece of Luke chapter 4 when Jesus describes his ministry. The Jews at the end of that chapter are ready to murder Jesus. Why? It's not simply because he was going to go to the Gentiles. It's not simply because he wanted to bring the nations in. No, it's because Elijah and Elisha passed over the Israelite widows and the Israelite lepers in order to go to the Gentile. Christ is going to pass over and pass by Israel for the sake of the Gentiles. Jesus is really comparing the Jews to the nation of Israel and and their wickedness and their apostasy. He's comparing them to Gehazi or the king of Israel who didn't know about Elisha. He's saying, listen, you've lost your way. You've, You've forgotten what the scriptures teach about God and teach about the Messiah. You've made God and the Messiah into your own image, what you want. So everything that Naaman says in his conversion and his confession is really bad news for Israel because Gehazi and, and, and Israel in general, you don't find that faith in the nation at this point. You see the little pockets of it here and there, but the nation at large is gone. Jesus looks out in the synagogue in Luke 4 at a sea of of churchgoers and scripture readers and rule followers and says, I see no faith here. 
That's why they went to go kill him. So again, this is another one of those, those sixth sense moments. Everything that those Jews thought they knew about Christ and the Messiah and the year of the Lord's favor and bringing freedom to the oppressed, they didn't get it. They'd, they'd forgotten something. And we can be in, in danger of that drifting as well. So how do you avoid becoming the Gehazi? Maybe to answer that, we can put the question like this. How do you become a Gehazi? Number one, you presume upon God's grace. You start to become entitled. You start to feel like, you know, I've merited something for myself. Maybe I've earned a little bit of leeway with God. We assume that maybe God will, will sweep our little sins under the rug. We give ourselves a little bit of license to sin here and there. And a lot like Gehazi, after years and years of hearing about mercy and love and peace and joy and forgiveness and thanksgiving, we lose that understanding of ourselves as a dog, a child, a servant, undeserving, a recipient of grace, not our wages, grace. We presume upon God's grace. Number two, we make we make God a vending machine. He becomes a tool that we use to get what we want in life. We think that if we just keep going to church, keep reading my Bible, then probably nothing really bad is ever going to happen to me or my kids or my parents. Life will go pretty well. We start to feel like we deserve the answers to our prayers. We think we deserve to have that prayer answer for the pay raise or the perfect children or the healing. And then when we don't get it, we get angry at God. Sometimes that can be very defiant, shaking your fist at God. Sometimes, that, sometimes that's through tears. How come I'm not getting this? I want to spend so much time praying. Why are you not giving this to me? We've sort of turned God into that vending machine. Number three, we put up barriers to God's grace. We want to make people pay a price. Or we only share the gospel with the people that we feel like have earned it. We only share the gospel because we think they've sufficiently cleaned themselves up or, or they've, listen, they've, they've started to fit the mold for what a Christian should look like. Maybe we look sideways at certain people who come on Sunday mornings and, and we wonder what they're doing here. They don't seem to really fit in. Certain people are just too messy. Certain people are too inconvenient. It's too difficult. Maybe on the wrong side of the political aisle. Too messy and difficult to invite them into our home and to share the gospel with them. And we add some sort of prerequisite or addendum to the true and free gospel. And it's no longer faith alone that unites them to Christ. It's faith plus some sort of work. And actually, if, you, if you're in our small group and you're going through the book of Galatians, that is exactly what the Galatians are condemned for. They've started to add something to the, the free gospel. It was no longer faith alone. 
Again, here's the good news. Christ gives grace to the people like Gehazi. And we, we, we've, all become, we, we've all been Naaman at some points. We've been dead in our sins and trespasses and we've all miraculously been forgiven and cleansed. And we will also be the Gehazi. We will all start to get loose and lax in our faith. We will get desensitized to the same old story that we've heard a hundred times. We, our sinful nature will get the better of us. And then you need to go back to Naaman. And you say, God gives grace for me even now. And I know he can draw me back. We go right back to Naaman. And we remind ourselves that no one is too far gone for God to go get. The gospel is radically gracious. And it is radically universal. And we as the church have to imitate that heart. We have to imitate that mission of God lest we risk becoming like, like the Pharisees and the Jews. <clears throat> so the question is, where is your heart this morning? Is it your, your personal mission to see the church, maybe this church and other churches as well, to see the church filled with redeemed sinners singing God's praises? Is it your mission to even see those who were once your biggest enemies come and worship Christ? And again, God has been infinitely gracious and generous with us. We have Christ eternally. We have Christ even now. And so we are free to go out and be gracious to others like that. By God's grace, may we as as the church be like that. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we are uh, we are brought low by this text. We are brought low by the example of, of Naaman and Gehazi. Lord, we ask that you would lift us up by the, the mercy and the goodness of Christ. Lord, we do thank you for Jesus paying for all of our sins, no longer having to worry about them. Lord, we thank you for, for the freedom that we experience in this life now. Not to live for ourselves, not, not to, to get all the things that we need or want, but, but thank you that we can entrust ourselves to you. Lord, would you, would you put us on the right mission in life? As individuals and as, as, as Tyrone, <clears throat> as our presbytery, as our denomination, Lord, we pray that you would uh, that you would send us all out, whether it's it's to our neighbors and coworkers, or whether it is to another country and around the world. Lord, we do long to see your churches full. We long to see people praising you, and so we do pray that you would.